Was it good? Was it bad? What was it like working with him, working with her? You'll hear all the tales you wish you knew. Every aspect of the theater, too. Feel your love of Broadway anew on Backstage Babble. Hi, this is Charles Kirsch, and welcome to Backstage Babble. Backstage Babble is a podcast interviewing professionals in the theater industry about themselves, their careers, and the people they've worked with along the way. And today, I am so happy to welcome my guest, author and playwright Paul Rudnick. Paul's book, Feral Covington and the Limits of Style, was recently released, and his myriad other books include I Shudder, Gorgeous, and I'll Take It. He's also the author of the Broadway play I Hate Hamlet, and the plays Jeffrey, Valhalla, The New Century, Regrets Only, The Naked Truth, and Rude Entertainment. His screenplays include such hilarious movies as Sister Act, In and Out, The First Wives Club, and The Addams Family Values. And now, without further ado, here's Paul Rudnick. And so I'd love to start by asking you, how did you first become interested in writing? And Oh my God, I think it was somehow inborn. I mean, I grew up just in the New Jersey suburbs and it was all I ever wanted to do. And I don't know if it was just because it was a good way of avoiding a real job or <laughs> I, was, I was also just a lifelong theater addict. I mean, my parents were great about taking me and my brother to the into Manhattan to see shows, but I was working in community theaters and drama clubs and it just, it was barely a choice. It just was what the only thing I wanted to do. Right. And what were some of those shows that you saw early on? And well, I did have, and this was all so far below before you were born. I had an uncanny gift when I was very young, and my parents would let me pick a different musical to see on my birthday. Uh-huh. And I had this ability to hone in on the biggest flops of all time. But because I was very young, I didn't care. As long as there was a curtain and an orchestra, I was just in heaven. So I would see, you know, things like Dear World and Zorba, you know, play shows by brilliantly talented theater artists, but it was, I could pick them. Um, So, but I I think that's a wonderful time in anyone's life when you're sort of not worrying about what other people think or what the critical consensus is or what you should be seeing. I just loved everything. And were you always funny around the household and was your sense of humor sort of shaped back even then or? Well, I come from a family that was funny. I mean, they were, you know, one of those Jewish clans where everybody was funny and it was a great balance wheel for whenever anything terrible happened. If you could make a joke about it, it was not quite so bad. And it was, there are just rhythms that I think are born into those, a lot of those families, especially first, second generation Jewish families. So I knew I was, knew early on that I wanted to be funny because so many people around me were funny. And I thought, that's just a much better way to go through life. I mean, if you can right. find the punchline, you're a little less depressed, to say right. the least. And were you trying to be an actor at first in these community theaters or? In the most minimal way possible. <laughs> that I think when you start out, everybody a little bit leans towards being an actor because you get more attention. And you think, oh, I'll be a star and I'll be tons of money and everyone will love me. And But then once you actually meet real actors and you realize the skill and dedication that takes that you or I did not have, 
then I I pretty much abandoned that. So I was great at doing the most tiniest walk-ons. I remember when I worked for a community theater where I would do, um, there's a guy who comes out in the last act of Plaza Suite to marry the daughter who's locked herself in the bathroom. That would be me. <laughs> if they ever needed someone to carry the star's luggage, they would find me. It was, so when it was, um, you know, good training and it was a way to meet people. And it was just a way to be around to play and see how it functioned and see how the talented people acted. So it was, uh, but yeah, it was never something that was was in the cards for oh. which I think is of great benefit to the world in, in general. Right. And where did you study back then? And what did you study in terms of college and all that? And oh, well, I, cause I went to public high school in Jersey and Piscataway, and then I went to Yale where I was a drama major, which sounds much better than it is. Because <laughs> people think of that in terms of the graduate drama school where wonderful people like Meryl Streep and Christopher Durang and um, Wendy Wasserstein went. Uh, and But I was an undergraduate where the major consisted of about four people because they wanted to discourage any sense of professionalism as if that was somehow you know, anathema to the to the uh, college experience. But it meant I had a great time because I kind of could make up the major as I went along. Um, and I remember when I was a senior, they changed the dean of the undergraduate major, and I had really loved the, the previous one. So as my revenge, I wrote a play as my senior thesis, which was basically anything anyone had said to me the week before. It really was people sitting around gossiping about whatever. And then the new dean called my bluff and said, this is brilliant. We'll have to stage this. And I thought, that wasn't the idea. So I, um, what I ended up doing was throwing a party. I sort of borrowed a stage from one of the um, secret societies, which they have at Yale, which have beautiful buildings. And I invited everyone I knew and I put up flyers to make sure there'd be a crowd. And I asked some of my actor friends to sit on stools and we performed the play. We, oh, and because there was a lot of alcohol, it went very well. <laughs> and I think I got an A. So it was not what I would call, you know, a work of great literature, but it um, got the job done. So, but mostly I just, what I loved so much about um, being at college was that I got to meet people in that graduate school who were serious about a life in the theater and who were figuring out how to make that work financially and what their next step might be. Um, because it was such, it's to this day, it's the most precarious profession out there. So I loved realizing there were people who meant it, who were serious about working in the theater. And I got to watch them at, in at their earliest stages. So that was, uh, that was the beginning. And many of your other works later on, like I'll Take It, are about your family members and all that. And has anyone ever gotten offended by your portrayal of them? Or do they realize it's about them? Or sometimes they do what it's so odd sometimes people will claim something about something's about them and it's not and you think you're flattering <laughs> yourself you're not that interesting but um with i'll take it which was basically inspired by which is the nice word for you know exactly about my mom and her two sisters who i adored who were these wonderful professional brilliant jewish women who also lived to shop and they would take me on trips in the, through New England in the fall where we would claim we were going to see the leaves change, we're going to the Whaling Museum in Maine, and we were just hitting every outlet store. <laughs> and then because I thought, okay, the book needed a little more of a plot, I there was sort of a lot of larceny involved there. I thought that's the next step out beyond shopping was stealing. So when the book came out, my family, they were wonderful about it. And they said, um, uh, it's, it's all accurate except for the stealing. And I, yeah, I would agree with them. 
And sometimes my mother would get a little fancy and say, oh, you make us sound too Jewish. You're making us into cartoons. <laughs> and then she'd say something <laughs> that made her sound like a beautiful Jewish person from New Jersey. And I'd say, mm-hmm. But um, so it was so much a tribute to those, those quite extraordinary women. Um, but yeah, since then, I do remember because um, I once I wrote under a, a pseudonym as Libby Gelman Waxner for Premier <laughs> Magazine, who was the world's most beloved and irresponsible film critic. And she once, and she would write whatever came into her head, and she only responded to movies in terms of things she wanted to buy, apartments she wanted to live in, movie stars she had crushes on. And so she once wrote about Kevin Klein, who was at that time going out with Phoebe Cates, a beautiful, much younger actress. And they got married and have remained so and are just one of the most magnificent couples. But Libby said something along the lines of, well, you know, there's an age difference, but let Kevin's mother worry about it. <laughs> then years later on in and out I worked with Kevin, <laughs> who could not be just the most generous and talented man. And he told me he did read it at the time. And at first he thought, well, I was, I was wondering if he should be offended, and then he decided he thought it was funny. So I was so grateful. So, um, yeah, there. I think there's been a knife's edge sometimes, but uh, for the most part, people have been wonderful, so that they um, they tend to enjoy it and accept it in the, in the very affectionate spirit that it almost always is, because there's really, right, there's very little point in writing completely hatefully about people you just can't stand, because that will we're at its welcome quite quickly. You have to find out how did they get there? What's worth saving? You know, what do you actually enjoy about that person? So um, so that's always part of my my way in. Yeah. And so to, um, to go back a little bit, did you move to New York right out of college or? I did. I did because I was just, I couldn't abide the idea of any more schooling, which was, you know, just me being spoiled brat but although I had no money so I don't know why I was spoiled but um but yeah I just was from the time I was little I actually never divided people into into gay and straight I thought there are people who live in New Jersey and people who live in New York <laughs> and I knew that sooner or later the bus would show up and take me to New York and so it did and um so yeah that was always the dream and has remained so I think there's wonderful theater going on everywhere in the world but um but there was a buzz and a sense of uh, ambition and joy that only I, for me, only existed in New York. So, oh yeah, I went right there. And it was a long enough time ago so that I could live cheaply, which you nowadays, I think anyone who in show business or the arts who moves to New York, moves to Queens or Bushwick or Williamsburg, where you could get an almost affordable room in someone else's apartment. <laughs> but back then, believe it or not, you could pay almost no money and live in the West Village, in a hovel, on the top floor. And I lived in a, this studio apartment until the roof collapsed after a winter storm and dumped a ton of snow and ice on my bed, which I luckily was not in at the time. But it was, yeah, but you still, I didn't care because I was in New York and it was, you know, the way you begin. So, um, so yeah, I did head right for the city. And how did you get this early job with William Ivy Long and... Oh, because I knew William from when he was at the uh, the Yale Drama School, and I just adored him, as did everyone. And he was starting out as a costume designer. He eventually went on to win five or six Tony Awards. But at that point, he was like everyone else, broke, unhirable, um, much like myself. And God bless him, because he was willing to 
he paid me almost nothing, but he was living at the Chelsea Hotel, which was a wonderfully eccentric environment, which has since been kind of rehabbed. But um, he would pay me enough for like subway fare and Cheerios and things like that. And I just loved being around him. And it was another way of learning the theater. And, you know, we would shove all the costumes into onto the subway or into a cab and head up for whatever theater was paying him a nickel, you know, and he, um, but again, it was a way of being around the theater and doing, I was also so insanely unskilled. I'd also worked for William for the first time at Yale, it was over the summer. There was a place there called the Summer Cabaret, which I think still exists, where William hired me to be his assistant. I was also the janitor. I was also a waiter all at once. And William, had, well, right at the beginning, handed me a pair of shears and told me to cut a length of fabric into squares. And I thought, well, I could do that. Anyone could do that. When I started to do it, the scream that erupted from him, the horror, the nightmare. And he was absolutely right. I had no idea what I was doing and I was ruining the fabric forever. So he took many deep breaths, took a walk around <laughs> the block and realized he was dealing with a low functioning idiot. And then he would take me through step by step, monitor everything I was doing. And then we got along fine. And we just spent most of our time gossiping. But um, so that was what, when I first became his worst employee of all time. But um, it was also, and I, I don't know, maybe you could still do this once you start to sort of do early networking in the theater, where it's a way of you get to go to dress rehearsals, you get to go to uh, gypsy run-throughs when you have no money, so you can't afford tickets. If you know people in the theater, you could get, you could sneak in. So, um, so William was wonderful at that, at everything. And were there playwrights or humorists who sort of mentored you or helped you with? There were people who were wonderfully friendly. I was sort of too impatient and ignorant to take full advantage because also because I hadn't at Yale because the, the major was so limited. It wasn't really about studying playwriting or any single dis, uh, discipline. But I was friends with Bundy Wasserstein, who died far too young, but I got to watch her progress and so admired her plays. And Christopher Durang, there was a wonderful writer named Albert Inorato, so that I saw people's work that, and I saw how funny it was. I saw how they, the amount of time and effort they invested in their plays when they didn't work, how, what that was like. But so there were people who I learned from who wouldn't, I wasn't in any kind of program. Although I remember one of the most, valuable lessons was on the uh the critics preview of my play Jeffrey just at a small off off Broadway house and because it was so small and half the audience that night was critics there were no there was no laughter because critics don't laugh so I was suicidal and I just felt <laughs> so terrible and I went to a restaurant down the street and was prepared to just sort of drown my entire life and when he walked in with William Finn the wonderful composer lyricist and they said, Paul, what's wrong? And I told them, and Bill said, why were you there? Don't <laughs> ever go to those performances. That's deaf, because the reviews ended up being terrific, but it was, and I thought, okay, you can only learn that from someone who's been there. That no, don't do that to yourself. That's just pure masochism. And sometimes you'll think, wait, I have to do these things because you're insane. And um, so it was learning that sort of thing, learning about how you have readings, how you approach artistic directors, things like that, that I picked up from watching those people who were all at that time very early in their careers. Right, right. And you mentioned being sort of unskilled earlier on, that's right. And 
what was the sort of difference in in what you were doing and how did it sort of develop? Well, well, in terms of writing, I did it the hard way, which is probably the only way, which was I wrote endlessly. I wrote so many terrible plays that I and I learned that one of the greatest satisfactions in the world is writing an entire play, rewriting it eight times, and then throwing it out <laughs> before the rest of the world can glimpse the horror of what you've done, that you can't treat your words as if every syllable is precious. So that, and I went through the phases that everyone goes through where you imitate people, where which you copy people, where you do, or you just write awful autobiographical dreck um, until finally, uh, and the, the, there you have something that might almost be a true idea. So I um, just kept at it. You know, you have to be willing to fail endlessly. As someone told me even recently, someone hugely successful, everyone fails far more than they succeed. So when there's that, um, that ancient truism that you learn more from failure, which is true also, what else are you gonna do with it? You know, it's not like you should welcome failure, it's another educational experience. It's just, no, you better not let it destroy you. And you better, at least I always think, don't make the same mistake twice. If you do it twice, it's your fault. If you make a fresh mistake and you find a whole new disaster, that's, you know, a step in some direction. So um, yeah, that was how, and I remember, my first play was something, Proust produced play was something called Poor Little Lambs, which was about the Yale Wizard Poof. So it was sort of a, a next step from college, like college years inspired that. Because also when you're that young, you know, unless you've been through a far more varied existence than I had, you don't have that much to write about. But I did know the college experience. And it was also a quasi-musical because it was the Wizard Poofs were this great acapella singing group. And we had a lot of great actors at, right at the beginning. Kevin Bacon was in it, an actor named Bronson Pinchot, Blanche Baker. So, and then with a terrific director named Jack Hopsis. And what happened was it opened and it was okay. It wasn't great. And the reviews were very mixed. And it was the kind of slap I needed because I, I had no idea what I was doing. You know, it was where you don't know what rehearsal is like. I remember the first time I sat in auditions and I realized what actors go through. And I wanted to give every one of them, every role and a hundred dollars. You know, you just thought nobody should have to, you know, do go through that process in front of idiots like me. So I, that was how I learned. And then when I realized, oh, this is nowhere near good enough, that was invaluable. Because I thought if I'm going to be serious about this and I'm going to make this my life, I have to work so much harder, which isn't just about the time you put in. It's about how you work and what you're aiming for. So it was, you know, having that kind of, it wasn't a disaster, but having an early, not, not so perfect experience that I could only blame on myself because everyone else involved was terrific, um, was one of the most helpful things ever. Because I think there are actually people are very early and very earned and deserved success, but then they're in another strange position of, okay, what did I do? How do I repeat it? How do I remember what I did? Um, so yeah, I mean, I think everyone has their own path. So that was mine. And what were some of the specific ideas, if you remember, that you sort of started writing and then threw out or wrote eight times and then threw out? Oh, God only knows. That's a, what a <laughs> cruel question. <laughs> I mean, part of it was the autobiographical idea. If you ever want to, you know, truly bore an audience to tears, say, oh, look, here I was growing up as a little gay boy in New Jersey. Isn't that interesting? No, it's not. <laughs> uh, unless you really work 
awfully hard to make it interesting, or unless you were a little gay Jewish serial killer or something <laughs> that's worth an audience's time. So, um, but I, what did I do? I remember, just for, I remember every time I'd read a play that I loved, whether it was No Coward or Oscar Wilde or um, anybody, I would think I should do that. And I'd basically write that, that play or it might be set in contemporary times, but it was awful. It was just a bad copy. And um, I remember I wrote a play that was a little bit like my senior play at Yale, which was, okay, what if I just take all my friends and have them banter? And I think that's a common mistake because you think, no, your friends are not that funny. Your friends are not that interesting and it's not their fault. Also, they're, they may be actually quite clever and, and complicated, but you're not equipped yet to portray that. And nobody's life has gotten that complicated yet. So I would do that and I would watch it and realize, oh, okay, this doesn't work. Um, throw it out. And I think it wasn't until when I actually moved into John Barrymore's old apartment off Washington Square. And I remember the um, the ad in the New York Times for the apartment, the real estate listing said, medieval charm. And I thought, what does that mean? You know, is that the plumbing? It seemed very confusing. And it was on the top floor of a brownstone just in from the park. And it was gorgeous. It was, it, the medieval aspects were very theatrical. It looked like a set for a murder mystery in Summerstock. And, um, and it had a little cottage on the roof. But Barrymore in like the 1920s, when he had played Hamlet, lived there. And he had added all of these details and he had had seances there. He'd actually planted a garden with a reflecting pool on the roof, which I learned from research had eventually collapsed into the apartment below and everything had to be replaced. But when I was living there, I thought, I first began writing a novel set in that location and it immediately demanded to be a play. It was one location, it was about theatrical creatures because it involved the ghost of John Mar Barrymore coaching a young actor who was playing Hamlet at Shakespeare in the Park. So I thought, no, this thing wants to be a play. So <laughs> I wrote it and I was ended up being lucky enough to have it done on Broadway. And it's, it's still done all over the world, but it's, um, and I've learned to say, no, I won't rewrite it in many languages. <laughs> because the, the role of Barrymore is this big, juicy, you know, ham bone parts and actors love that sort of material. And it's been played by so many wonderful actors, but sometimes they want even more. And you say, no, 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 it's, it's done. You do that. Um, but that was, so if anybody wants to know how, where do you find inspiration? It's anywhere. I mean, that was from real estate. That right. was from an apartment that demanded, to, oh, also because right at that time, I had an agent, a wonderful woman named Helen Merrill, who was this ancient German woman who, she was probably in her 40s when we met, but she looked 80 and remained that way till she was 80. And she was just terrific. But she, when I told her I was, had just been shown the Barrymore apartment, she said, oh, schnooky perhaps you have found my hairpins. Because <laughs> when she was younger, she had had an affair in the apartment with Barry Moore's son-in-law. So suddenly, you know, the karma of this place became so intense that I thought I'd better write about this. If I don't, you know, I'm making some horrible mistake. So it, you know, it ended up being a very fraught experience, but, uh, but I was so very grateful. And it was amazing to have a play done on Broadway. Uh, at the Walter Kerr Theater, which was right after it had been rehabbed, which is just a jewel box. So, um, yeah, so that was part of, you know, learning by doing. Oh, yeah. And how did it come to be produced on Broadway? And uh, Helen, I think, had something to do with that because 
at that point I was making her no money and I would do all sorts of errands for her to earn my keep. Um, she was also insanely cheap and she would usually steam off the postage meter labels from packages and glue them on other packages. And she'd send me out to mailboxes all over the city because she thought that way the FBI would not catch up with her. And I think the FBI had better things to do. But I think Helen sent it to commercial producers, some of whom responded. And and they were wonderful to me. And it, we, we did a, 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 a triad sort of workshop up at um, Skidmore, the college, which had a beautiful stage. And we um, got to work with a, a different cast that then eventually ended up on on Broadway, but it was very invaluable as a way of seeing a play on its feet and seeing what might work and what might not. So, um, so yeah, it was a process that I think was probably certainly a lot cheaper than it is now, but it still was people willing to take a risk on a kid, on a very untried talent with no track record whatsoever. And I was so grateful. And I think I, to this day, I think people should remember how valuable producers are because I think sometimes we complain about them and rail against them and think of them as so old fashioned, which sometimes they are, but also don't, you should never be snobbish about money. You know, if those people are willing to pay to see your work realized, that's, you know, a gift and beyond. So, and this was a particularly nice group of producers. So, um, and we went through a lot of insanity on that production because we had a major alcoholic star who um, one night there, the first act ends with a climactic duel with rapiers and all over the stage, which was very carefully planned by a brilliant fight choreographer and um, our star, because he was such an alcoholic wreck and an egomaniac and who did not want to share the stage with anyone else. This was a man named Nicole Williamson, an English actor of enormous repute, but also a deeply unpleasant human being. And Evan Handler, who was nothing but joy, who played the young uh, the guy who was playing Hamlet in the park. And because Nicole didn't, he basically didn't like anyone. He uh, took out after Evan during the duel one night and stabbed him and drew blood. And it was really sort of shocking. And Evan, rightly so, and to his credit, left the stage and the production. And Evan's understudy finished that performance and the rest of the run. So it was that kind of situation where I'd never dealt with a star who behaved this badly at such a grand degree and the producers were just invaluable in guiding me and the production and everything about it through this lunacy um so that but yeah that was how how the the play ended up happening i think through helen and very brave and maybe foolish producers but god love them right and so you wrote this fantastic essay all about I Hate Hamlet, so I won't ask you too much more about it, but I would love to ask more about Celeste Holman, what it's like to work with her. Oh, she was wonderful, because Celeste was, you know, had been an enormous movie star and had a, did have a very large following, especially among middle-aged ladies. And Celeste knew she was a real, she'd also been on the stage many times, aside from being in All About Eve and a ton of other wonderful films, she knew like how to take a pause after your first entrance because she knew there was going to be enormous applause from her devoted ladies. And she did, she came on stage in a mink coat looking just smashing and they'd go wild. But they also went wild because Celeste was making them because she was pausing and saying like, I'm not making a move until I get an ovation. And I remember Celeste, she was, she was adorable. I remember she, um, we actually had a seance in the Barrymore apartment with the cast. 
And Nicola was very grand and was saying, come hither, ghost, and that kind of thing. And we hired a, um, a psychic. She was sort of like a psychic by the hour. And it, she was going around the room and telling everyone who their spirit animal was hovering over their head. And I remember Celeste's spirit animal, and now I'm using the phrase spirit animal is now politically quite rightly questionable, but that's what she used back then. And Celeste's spirit animal told her never to wear fur. Now Celeste bought a new mink every year. So she was not too happy. I think she fired her spirit animal. So it was fun to watch Celeste be Celeste. And she um, she was very funny and incredibly charming. And she, um, I remember I was sitting in the house with her during tech rehearsals and we were having, you know, like a costume parade. And I remember Nickel came out on stage for the first time in his black velvet tunic and black tights. And, you know, which he was quite proud of. And Celeste turned to me and she said, you know, I've seen it. It's huge. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, well, hello, Academy Award winner. <laughs> so she was, you know, she had a great sense of humor. So that one day, I remember I did once add a line to a scene that she was not in. I don't remember what the line was, but she summoned me to her dressing room where she was applying her makeup with some of the most extraordinary lifelong honed skill. And she said, Paul, I cannot conceivably appear in this play with if that line remains in that scene. You've made me feel like a French whore. And I thought, what? <laughs> and the line was so nothing. And I mean, and I cut the line anyway, I'd already cut it, but I thought, I'm kind of proud that I made Celeste home feel like a French whore. <laughs> I kept thinking, why a French horse? <laughs> you know, where did that come from? But she, oh, she also told me a great story, which has been repeated many times. But I think Celeste was sort of the horse's mouth for this, which was that when um, she once made a movie called Come to the Stable, which was based on the true story of a convent in Pennsylvania called the Regina Laudes, Lourdes Convent, uh, and that um, she was co-starring with Loretta Young. And Loretta Young, who was an enormous star at the time, had also given birth to Clark Gable's illegitimate baby, which she then pretended to adopt. She, pretend, she never acknowledged the pregnancy and she became the most devout Catholic of all time. So Loretta was quite prim and quite proper and she um, instituted a cuss box on the set of this film, which is that whenever you took the Lord's name in vain or anything else, you had to put money into the cuss box, which would be given to charity. And according to Celeste, one day Ethel Merman visited the set and Ethel was told about the cuss box and why she had to watch her language. And Ethel thought about it. And then she turned to Loretta and she said, hey, Loretta, go fuck yourself. Here's 10 bucks. <laughs> so put it in the box. So I just loved the idea of that particular clash of Celeste Loretta Young and Ethel Merman, in which two of those women were dressed as nuns. So um, it was it was a great experience to just be around someone. I remember Celeste, I think at that time was, she may have been practically the last surviving cast member of All About Eve and of a number of other, you know, legendary Hollywood films. So it was, it was just another wonderful opportunity just, and she was very welcoming and was, um, you know, was for all her vanity still was very generous spirited. Right. And was it a conscious choice to not ever come back to Broadway as a playwright after that? Or is that just sort of how it happened? Or That was how it happened. But it also it was very daunting because the experience was wild. And mm -hmm. I thought, okay, 
even though it's an amazing um, time to have a play on Broadway and to be that young, I thought that's not the goal. The goal is to write a play that I was fully proud of. And I had not done that yet. I was nowhere even close to it. So I thought, okay, I don't care where this play ends up as long as it's the very best I can do. And that didn't happen until I wrote Jeffrey, which was right at the height of the AIDS crisis. And it was a comedy set in that period. And that was considered not just in the worst possible taste, but impossible. And it, Helen sent it to every producer in New York, every producer in the country, every not-for-profit theater, turned down across the board. People just wouldn't even acknowledge it. They hated it so much or were so afraid of it. And I remember we got one letter from an artistic director who said, uh, well, I enjoyed this, but our subscribers would never stand for it. Uh -huh. And Helen finally convinced a wonderful man named Kyle Rennick, who ran the WPA Theater, which no longer exists, but it was a little hole in the wall theater on 23rd Street, where a lot of great plays actually began. Steel Magnolias, Little Shop of Horrors, all sorts of things. Um, and she told Kyle, I'm not leaving your office until you read this play. And because Kyle was a little afraid of Helen, he read it and he said, I probably will regret this, but I'll do it. And for Kyle, who, who passed away about a year ago, I, so, I will remain in his debt forever because it was considered the most radioactive play. I mean, every actor in New York was warned away from it. They said their careers would be over, not just because it was a comedy about AIDS or that's what it was called, but because it was so overwhelmingly gay. And that was still at that time, many years ago, considered unthinkable but and I worked with the, it's just the most terrific director Chris Ashley and we so believed in this play and I kept rewriting and making it the best I could and I remember right before we opened I sat on a bench in the back of the theater and I actually started to cry and I don't and I'm not a crier and it was because and Chris said why are you crying and I said because I actually really like this and if it's a huge dud that's going to be really upsetting and really heartbreaking and I remember on the, the opening night when um Chris and I were still at the theater and we you realized this was back when uh sort of pre-internet when the reviews would come out and you'd go to the newsstand and get the the papers and Chris's assistant who was a great guy came in and we saw him through like a little window in one of the doors and he went like this he went thumbs down and I, my heart just shattered. Wow. It turned out he was joking because the review was a rave and the reviews were great. And, but beyond that, it was the first play that did not sort of horribly embarrass me where I thought, okay, this is using the best of me. This is what I should be doing. This is whatever I have to offer. This is the form it should take. And that play, which was set for like a two week run at this tiny theater, sold out that run in a, at an extension and then moved for a commercial run at the Manetta Lane Theater back when you, there wasn't off-Broadway and ran for a year. So that was gratifying beyond belief and was eventually, and then people said, this play will never be performed except in New York or maybe San Francisco. And it was done all over the world. And so it was just, it changed my life. And it was, but the, the most important thing was that it, it was taught me, no, don't worry about the venue. Don't worry about the whatever kind of attention you think you will get or the amount of money involved do the thing you have to do do the thing that only you could do for better or for worse and work with people who are more talented than you so that you will learn from them and that was you know the lesson of a lifetime and so it was it was just it was so odd because you know we were living in this horrific time in new york especially for 
for gay people. And it was, um, but it was also weirdly, there was a tribal feeling and there was a sense of a, there were a number of great gay plays back then, you know, The Normal Heart, Angels in America, all sorts of things where theater became invaluable because the, um, the media was not covering the AIDS crisis almost at all and certainly not from a gay perspective. And so when people wanted just information aside from a well-made play, they went to the theater. So it was essential. And that was both horrifying and so thrilling at the same time because theater was suddenly the center of the culture. And that almost never happens. So right. it's, um, yeah. So that was why I didn't end up on Broadway again, but it was did not feel like something that was in any way necessary. I thought, oh, okay, this, I don't care where these plays end up as long as they're seen in a context that isn't uh, a nightmare. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, that was, uh, that didn't become the goal after that. And has there ever been a subject that you found ended up being sort of too taboo for audiences, something like On the Fence or? Oh, On the Fence, so interesting you should say that. Yes, well, that was a weird combination of both subject matter and timing because that was one of three one acts in a, an evening called Root Entertainment, which was being done at the what's now the Barrow Street by a wonderful theater group that's now also defunct called the, the Drama Club. And they were very wild, very extreme satiric plays. And we opened two weeks after 9-11. And the uh, World Trade Centers, or what was left of them, or the plume of smoke was visible from outside the theater because it was so far downtown. So we first we shut down the place because we thought, oh, the, you know, you can all New York had shut down. You cannot. Why should anyone be asked to go to the theater in the face of this kind of nightmare? And then New York sort of had began to pull itself back together and say, no, we have to make sure that life goes on in the face of this kind of evil. So it was, I, God, I hope never to go through that again. And that, it, which I love that phrasing it in, in the most selfish, trivial terms, like how dare those terrorists affect my off-Broadway play? But they did. And it was the kind of thing, and, you know, it wasn't just me. There were actors, there were producers, there were people who I, I wanted to do right by. So, so we opened and it was so fascinating because the audience both was grateful for a reason to leave their homes. They would laugh, but the laughter had a, a weird electricity to it because it was so nervous because people were like, they didn't know what they were allowed to laugh at anymore, whether they should at all and who could blame them. And the, the, the third play, which was very extreme, which was about was sort of a fantasia about Matthew Shepard being visited by the ghosts or the some equivalent of Eleanor Roosevelt and Paul Lind, who was a wild gay comic and actor. And so it was already quite out there. And <laughs> it originally ended with all the characters pointing guns at the audience. Everything you probably should never do at any moment, but certainly not two weeks after an international holocaust. So that was, there's no lesson in that other than you know, no, come on, your play is nothing in the grander scheme of things. But it was, it was a fascinating way to observe human behavior and how people get through. And it was, um, so yeah, in terms of subject matter, often if there's something that makes me very nervous, it's what I'll write directly towards because, okay, that's gonna, probably will be funny, will make other people nervous, which will make them laugh. So that, and also that's what's most interesting. You don't want to play it safe. 
Um, so yeah, so I've never shied away from anything, but you gotta be careful because then you better do it justice. You know, if you could write about something that's really taboo, you better bring your, you know, AAA plus game because otherwise, yeah, you're being an idiot. Um, but yeah, no, I just, it's never been a real concern. So sometimes with people, then when I wrote the most fabulous story ever told, which was about the history of world religion from a gay perspective, there were huge protests from very strange Catholic organizations. My favorite one being the, was named the Society of Mary, which also sounds like a gay organization. <laughs> but, um, but, and I'd sort of seen it coming, but I just hadn't, it hadn't bothered me because I thought, but why, and then you end up finding out great things. Like a lot of the people who came to see Most Fabulous were priests and nuns and they loved it. The more Catholic <laughs> you were, the more you understood it, the more you got it. And the more it was a lot of, you know, secret dirty thoughts. So it's, uh, it's almost never what you, the rep response to places is almost never what you anticipate. So uh, that's why I don't worry about, okay, am I allowed to write about this? And right now, again, we're living in a moment of great cultural trepidation. So, um, so and sometimes I think, you know, when people have political objections to things, I actually think about it because sometimes they're absolutely right. And I think, no, 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 that's something to consider. And sometimes I think, fuck them. You know, <laughs> this, I'm writing this, let them write their own play or novel or, or movie. Um, so yeah, I, but I think a lot of that, the attention to political correctness is absolutely valid and some of it isn't. So it's kind of a go by case by case. Right. right. And how did you first meet Christopher Ashley, who you mentioned, and what do you think makes you two such great and long lasting collaborators? Oh, he was, he was also a client of Helen Merrill's. So oh. she put us together and Chris was also just starting out. Uh, his career then. I remember we went to see a play together and we I think we bonded because we both hated it. You know, and there's nothing that brings theater people together as much as evil gossip afterwards. So then we sort of, and Chris is, what I've noticed with other directors, sometimes there are directors who lack a certain confidence, which they express through bullying, and they will become your worst enemy because you have to get through all of their personal nonsense to work on the play. Chris is the exact opposite. He's someone who so loves what he does, so loves writers and actors and designers and everybody else that he feels, I think, grateful to be in the room with everyone so that you, and there's no um, barrier between you and the best work you can do with his encouragement. So it was just a joy because there was just no ego. We shared a sense of humor. I remember the only day when I got nervous was we were rehearsing at the New York Theater Workshop and Chris was standing by a fire door to, to the fire escape with one hand out the door. And I thought, oh my God, is he leaving? Is he that upset? Is he that discouraged? And then I realized, you know, Chris at that time was a chain smoker. So he had a cigarette in the hand uh -huh. that was outside the building. And I thought, oh good, that's not my problem. Well, I tried to, we tried, all, everyone near Chris, we forced him to stop smoking. But, um, but yeah, it was just a great match because I felt I could fail horribly in front of Chris, which is so essential that I could call him at two in the morning and say, okay, here are five new ideas for that scene. And they would all be horrible. And he would tell me in the kindest way, he would say, well, that's so interesting. What now, what, what are other possibilities? You know, it would never be, you suck. You have no talent. It would be kind of, oh, we're in this together and let's explore a little further. And he was so kind and it was so, um, and we could laugh. 
and then you feel protected, which is, I think, what you need with the director, you know, because a director is sort of like a combination of a teacher and a shrink and a parent. And if that person is no fun or has an agenda, then you're in big trouble. But Chris is the opposite. He's just oh. so talented and a sweetheart. And, you know, I'm far from the only person who's felt this way. Wow, that's wonderful. And so did you find that the experience of being out was different once you started to move into the Hollywood industry? And Well, it was interesting because I entered all of that at a kind of a tipping point. Because one thing that AIDS did, which uh, was that it made gay lives irrefutable, that before then it could all be hidden, it could all be smirked about, it could all be sensed as, oh, that's something you do on your own time, don't bring it to work. Right. But AIDS made all of that seem particularly obscene, like how dare anyone hide when people were dying. So it was kind of a process because yeah, when I started in Hollywood, writers have it easier because you, you know, everyone in show business is gay. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> I remember I was on a panel at Juilliard and it was me, the great actress, Cherry De Jones, Jordan Roth, forget who else. And it's some wonderful student, a very young guy stood up and he raised his hand and said, now, I really want to work in the theater, but I'm openly gay. Is that going to be a problem? And Cherry's hometown in Tennessee had just given her a parade, and there's no one more out than Cherry. So we all got to say, no, that's not really going to be a problem. <laughs> so in the theater, though, even although early on, as I said with Jeffrey, there was resistance to um, something that was that wild and honest a uh, depiction of gay lives. So that, yeah, that, but a lot of barriers were breaking then not just through my work, but through everybody's, you know, from masterpieces like Angels in America, which won, you know, two Pulitzer Prizes. Hollywood was a little different because the financial stakes are so much higher mm -hmm. that people say, oh, we'd love to make a gay movie, but they don't, there's, the audience is too small, or, you know, we can't open it in every theater across the country. And what finally happened was the most gay thing was when we did in and out which was, God bless him, I know he's had a very troubled history, but the producer, Scott Rudin, who's yes. a very complicated and brilliant man, he was the one who said, came to me and said, what if we do something inspired by Tom Hanks's Oscar acceptance speech when he thanked his high school drama teacher for being gay and the teacher was not really out at the time. So it was an interesting sort of jumping off point. And at first I thought, I couldn't figure out, well, what's the story? So I was kind of like, being reluctant and but Scott who is not a, a fellow who takes no for an answer told me to keep thinking and when I thought okay what if the guy gets outed the week he's about to be married to a woman and I thought okay now we have a story and I think with Scott's constantly guiding things along the way and protecting the project also we had done the, a lot of successful work for, for the studios at that point we'd made the Adams Family movies and I'd done a big rewrite on the first Wives Club so we had a certain um kind of credibility there but while I was writing it anytime the studio execs thought that the script was getting too gay they would say well doesn't this feel a little repetitive <laughs> I finally one day in the meeting I said you know I was born repetitive I can't help it and after that they never asked that question again and Think that in and out that was, and we got, you know, there were also actors who were afraid of that as well, but that's like, you know, God love Kevin Klein for coming on board. And the film opened and was a hit and it was financially successful, which was so sort of crucial at the time because it defeated that notion that gay material, gay characters, gay lives were not of interest and were certainly not financially feasible. 
And Hollywood still will tell you, oh, we'd love to, but look at the numbers. And that's absurd. There have been so many hugely successful gay themed projects from, you know, Brokeback Mountain, Moonlight, Cash of Hold, you name it. So, um, so it took a while and it took, you know, the sort of street smarts of a producer like Scott Rudin, who had a lot of capital at that time to say, tell a studio boss, we are making this movie and you're going to pay for it. Um, and to take that risk and to convince other people to take that risk. So, yeah, I mean, but that's why I was interested. It's always been interesting for me that I moved from an era in which a lot of that material was still very much off limits to what's so funny is nowadays, sometimes people will say, they'll yawn and say, oh, not another gay story. We've had so much of that. And I thought, no, you haven't. You've had a, you've had a few gay projects over the past, you know, 30 years. So stop whining. But um, yeah, there's sort of been a cycle. So, but now I mean, what's so wonderful and what I always thought was so necessary was to have this huge variety of gay themed pro projects so that no one player movie had to carry the burden of total representation. Right. No character had to be the perfect gay role model. And now you've got, you know, fantastic things like Bros, the Billy Actors movie, which I loved. Um, and Lord knows a ton of, of TV shows and, and God knows plays. So it's, uh, yeah, we're living in a much more agreeable time right now with its own problems. Right. And how did you end up, as you were mentioning, coming on to the First Wives Club? And That was, again, through Scott, because oh. we've worked together other times. And First Wives was insane, because oh. it had originally been, believe it or not, a very serious film. The original script was sort of tormented. It was about the tragedy of these women who were divorced and discarded. And one of them had a, a mentally disabled daughter. And then I was brought on to turn it into a comedy. <laughs> and, and they also said, could we turn the mentally disabled daughter into a lesbian? And I said, you know, that's not like a natural leap. But I said, I'll give it a shot. And um, and Scott, meanwhile, was assembling that extraordinary cast of Bette Midler and Goldie Hawn and Diane Keaton. And we were just gluing this thing together. And I loved the material. I loved, I knew the idea was inherently funny. So then we shot it all over New York and it went, I was on the set practically every day and it was wild. It was not easy. And then um, I remember once it was about to open, I thought it was going to be a disaster. I thought, oh, this thing is just too nuts. But it was so, you know, held together with, with spit and paper clips. But uh, Scott said, no, no, no at least do me a favor, come to the opening, watch the movie, and then if you hate it, fine. And so I went to see it, and it was delightful. It's a big mess, but it's a, you know, especially thanks to those ladies and thanks to the idea, it's a huge amount of fun. And again, I thought that's a tribute to Scott Rudin, who was the man who sort of slammed it together. Um, so it was, yeah, that was when, and it still goes on, that people are hired for rewrites where you sometimes won't be credited, but you will blessedly be paid. That's how most playwrights support themselves is through doing now. There's so much more work on streaming, although it's sometimes not as highly paid as, as screenplays. But, um, but yeah, it just became those sort of work relationships where you do one project with somebody, and if it goes well, you do another. Right. And you've written a lot for Bette Midler, Stepford Wives, and Isn't She Great? And as you mentioned in your book, even Sister Act originally. And oh, yeah. what do you think makes her sort of a great muse? And how have you learned to sort of adapt her style and all that? Oh, well, when I was still growing up, 
I would watch her on talk shows and things, and I just adored her. The world had never seen anyone like that. She was considered far more sort of controversial and off the charts back then because she was so funny and so irreverent and sexy and just would say whatever came into her mind. And I just thought, that's where I want to be. She was the first person I'd ever seen who had that kind of freedom. She also had a very direct line to the gay male audience, which you know, you can you can examine that forever. But she's got started singing at the Continental Baths, which was gay bathhouse in New York. So gay men kind of knew about her early on before the entire world you know, discovered her genius. She also was so funny. And that was with a kind of real freedom. She just go for it. And I thought that would be such a an honor and a joy to, to write for her, to write for that voice, somebody who would know where the joke was. Cause that's, if you write comedy, you want actors who will make you funnier, who will put your game to the test. And I've been real lucky with people like Bev and Nathan Lane and Christine Baranski and Harriet Harris, people who are seriously funny. So with that, that also has something that I've always loved, which is to um, combine the energy of musical theater with comedy so that you get that high that you get from a musical, even if it, there aren't that many songs or any songs whatsoever, which was why I wrote Sister Act for her originally. That was when I was, I remember I was sitting at my little apartment thinking that at that time, men in drag was considered quite funny. Women in drag was not. There, there were a few terrific, you know, uh, female to male drag queens, but they were very much onto the side at that time. And I thought, okay, what's the kind of drag you could put that, or a woman, excuse me, in? And I thought, a nun's habit. And suddenly the whole idea sort of unfurled. And I brought it to Scott and we brought it to Disney where Bette had a deal. Bette was making enormous, successful movies at the time. And she, God bless her, because she's a brilliant, brilliant woman. She resisted it for years because she had some strange superstition about playing a nun, even though everyone, including her own staff, would explain to her, Bet, you're you're playing a showgirl disguised as a nun. You're not actually like blaspheming this time. But that, and God love her, she she has since told me she regretted not doing it. But I even spent time in the convent. I did everything I could to try to, you know, talk her into it. Not happening. Then Whoopi Goldberg came on board and was brilliant, you know, and was um. Just, she was also, that was one of her first huge successes. So it was crazy, but it was, um, but I guess I'd also written that for Beth because it had so much music in it because she was playing a singer. So it just seemed like a natural fit. But yeah, Sister Act was just something that I knew when I first started writing it, that even if it were done poorly, it would be a success because it was a juicy idea. It was something people would want to see. You know, and since then it's been, there was a sequel, which I had nothing to do with. There was a stage musical, which I had nothing to do with. But God God love Helen Merrill. I get royalties from a lot of that stuff. <laughs> but um, it's very it's interesting as a writer when you think of, I remember this happened at one of the Adams Family movies when I was you know sitting in my studio apartment typing away back when I had a typewriter. And I said, oh, Gomez and Morticia enter a decaying French restaurant. And I thought, that's an easy sentence to write. And then suddenly I was on a soundstage in California on a movie lot and they built an entire decaying French <laughs> restaurant. And here was Raul Julia and Angelica Houston, these brilliant actors dressed to the nines. And I thought, oh my God, I thought the money being spent here could send, you know, an entire country to college. <laughs> and it's my fault. And I realized, especially in movies more than anything else, 
you're responsible for these enormous expenditures and, you know, uh, and employing so many brilliant people. So it was interesting. It's good when it goes well. Um, but uh, at Sister Act was also so crazy because I remembered, you know, when I went to the convent and learned so much about nuns that Disney had no interest in, including they did not want to know about lesbians who found a real refuge in, in convent life. So, um, yes, yeah, so that was a problem. And writing for Beth and other occasions where I did the rewrite on First Wives was wonderful because I knew her rhythms and could write directly towards them. Um, some of the other projects didn't go as well, but it was always a joy to work with Beth. And she's, um, she's just also, I think one thing I respond to is because if anyone's ever seen Bet on stage on tour or in Hello Dolly, God knows, but I got to a lot of her tours early in my life and they were just pure incandescent joy. And she knows her way around a stage. And in movies, if you're dealing with theater trained actors, that's such a bonus, whether it's, you know, Bet or Kevin Klein or David Hyde Pierce or whoever, that they're, um, you can rely on them. They know their technique is is way, way up there. And sometimes there are wonderful performers who just don't have that background and they're sort of coasting on whatever, whoever they actually are. And that's a little trickier, especially if you want them to be funny. But with that, you knew this was one of the funniest people on the planet. So that was, that was just always a gift. Oh, yeah. And what was your research process like for Isn't She Great? And Oh, well, it's great with sort of a little bit of a heartbreak because it's not, not really one of my favorite films, but it was about Jacqueline Suzanne who wrote Valley of the Dolls, who was a fascinating woman. And there had been uh, biographical pieces written about her that I think were were optioned. And it just, I wrote it from, I wrote many drafts that were very different, which is usually a sign that something may be a little awry, that there were drafts that were wildly comic, there were drafts that were practically musical comedy, and the final draft was kind of a little bit of a bastard of both. And it just didn't quite achieve what I wanted it to. So not through, we had, you know, wonderful director and, and the stars. So it was, um, it was frustrating, but it was, uh, you know, again, one of those things where you learn, just don't do it again, <laughs> you know? And that, I actually, and also that was one of the few films where I was not on the set so that it was, you're on the set, you can fix things, you can work on the fly, you could, I remember on in and out when we shot, there's a sequence where Kevin Klein sings and dances to the, his, he's listening to the Be A Man instructional right. tape. We shot that on a soundstage in Manhattan at the Chelsea Piers, where they filmed the Law and Order shows. And we had a wonderful actor named John Cunningham, who was doing the voice, a great stage star, who was doing the voice on the tape. And we were doing it all live. We had the set there, we had Kevin who just, will work forever. And so that we got, when we realized how funny it was and how great Kevin was and how much we liked seeing him dance, we kept adding to it. And because we were on set and it was live, we could do that. It was sort of like working in theater with people who did not need to be coddled in any way. So it was um, it was that great sort of meeting place of, of stage lunacy and, and, and movie making. And have you ever found that you've written for sort of a star celebrity who has been a little bit more demanding about sort of like upholding their reputation within the movie or? Let me think. I mean, I've written for people who are 
very nervous, let's say. Which I understand. I mean, they've got an enormous fan online. They are risking something that I'm not because they are up there. The people are watching them. It's their face, their body. And yeah, that's a different level of, um, you know, uh, confidence required. So I, I try to be very sympathetic. I don't think it's too easy to just say, oh, stop being such a diva. Right. Um, also, I always think you have to listen to everybody because sometimes there's a horrible rule, which is absolutely true. Sometimes even a stupid person can have a good idea. <laughs> so, you know, put your snobbery aside and listen. And also if someone is genuinely doesn't understand something um, or it's not clear to them in the, on the page, you should listen to them and you should try and solve that. That's your job. Um, but I'm trying to think, I mean, there are, I've been lucky because so many of the people I know have, uh, have just given their all. Cause when we shot the movie of Jeffrey, we had no budget, no permits. It was just guerrilla filmmaking. And we had all these great people, you know, Sigourney Weaver and, um, and Nathan Lane and Stephen Weber and everybody, and just showing up and sitting in a folding chair and, um, just having the best time. So it was, you know, you thought, okay, let's, let's, let's do this on the fly. You know, my, let's. My dad has a barn. So um, everybody was so, everybody, you know, brought their best selves. That was actually, there were, was a great lesson because Patrick Stewart, who was in that movie, you know, whoever was a huge star from Star Trek, the sweetheart of all time. And everywhere we went, mobs would surround him. And he was so gracious and so generous with his time and his attention to people that he was never, he would have been completely justified in being you know, in star behavior and never not for a second. So it was, um, I saw that much more than I saw any sort of kind of acting out. Weirdly, it was more in the theater with like Nicole Williamson, who was, you know, a nightmare on wheels. And I thought, that's not a movie star. That's just an Olympic level drunk. Um, and, and to their credit, I've known alcoholics who are sweethearts. Right. He's not one of those. Um, so yeah, so again, it's you just, you get what you get. And I've been, I've been very lucky. And how did uh, Marcy X first come about? And see, now we're now we're crossing into the Valley of Doom. Um, <laughs> Marcy X was another film that that was not successful and that no one should ever watch. That was um, Scott and I were working on a film because I remember what happened was we had early versions of the script, and then there was going to be a writer's strike in Hollywood, so nothing would be ever would be being filmed potentially for months and maybe even years. And the studio insisted on shoving it into production way before the script or any other aspect of it was ready. So it became a kind of botch. And it was the sort of the, the opposite of the way we like to work, which was nailing the script down, making sure it was the very best it could be. And again, we had very wonderful people involved, but it was um, not a situation I would ever want to repeat. And I think, and we both tried to actually say, no, please wait till after the strike, let this thing be get better and uh and the studio refused to do it so that was kind of a business decision that went wrong and on the other hand well I could say see I was right about that and that's you know not not the greatest satisfaction so it was um although it was they had wonderful aspects to it because Mark Shaman did the score and he's just you know so talented and, and a sweetheart and we had wonderful theater talent um in that that uh that we got to take advantage because that's also again Scott loves the theater and is, and often brings talent along with him so um so you just have fun of getting your friends on board um but yeah but it was it didn't turn out well so it was um not my favorite experience wow. 
And so I know that you were working on one for a little bit, but has it been, again, sort of similar question, has it been sort of a conscious decision to not really write the book for a musical? In <laughs> <laughs> one step further into the thing. Uh, now we're drowning. No, well, the only, I've been offered some, and then there was one that truly attracted me, which was The Devil Wears Prada. And I actually, there were many writers on the original screenplay of The Devil Wears Prada, and I was one of them. And I remember oh. thinking, this is a great property to someday become a musical. The final film was completely written by Aileen Brosh McKenna, who's an absolutely brilliant writer, so that's all her. Um, but then when they were, when the producers were thinking about it as a musical, and the people who had the rights, they approached me. And I thought, this sounds terrific, why not? And then so many talented people got on board, Elton John, um, Anna Shapiro, Shana Taub. And so it should have made for an ideal situation. And through the sort of insane alchemy of musical theater, which it's, you know, every musical usually does take seven years, all the things people will tell you, it'll be seven years, it'll be this or that. It was true. And I ended up leaving the production about a year before it was actually produced because I didn't have anything else to offer. And, and there were some fundamental disagreements. So it was something that should have gone very right and just didn't. And it's, um, you know, be there, it's, it's guesswork is a little bit too easy in those situations. But, um, but I found over the years why I was, had been a little bit wary about writing books for musicals was because I'm whatever gifts I have are a little bit better at original projects rather than adaptations. So I, I've learned to be wary of that. And there are things that uh, where I feel more grounded when it's like, okay, I make all the decisions. And, and now, which is, I, I love collaborating and plays are collaborations too. Musicals are the ultimate collaborations. So it's, um, it was an interesting process, but clearly, you know, the show eventually opened in Chicago without my participation in any way it was and did not do well so i i wished it only the best but it was um yeah it's always interesting how the best intentions the most money and the most talented people can you know not coalesce the way you you would hope they would right and so to um to get us out of the cavern of despair <laughs> more. shove the clouds away right just a more general question how do you approach it when you have to write a intimate scene or be it a sex scene or just a love scene or anything like that? And Well, it's a question of the tone of the entire piece. In a novel I have coming out in June called Farrell Covington and the Limits of Style, <laughs> which is a project I'm so proud of. I was just thinking of it when with your last question because it's something that's pure me, that, okay, this is something, whether people like it or not, and I hope they will, it's a story only I could tell. And it has actually more extreme sex scenes in it that I've written in the past, because that was what the material demanded. And also, when you're writing as a comic writer, you think, okay, do I make the sex scenes just farce? Or what if you could take them seriously as well? So there are moments of humor, but you really want to steam things up. So it was, a, and in this, I, what I, one of the other few things I've learned is you let the material dictate that. So that if you also don't want the actors to feel uncomfortable or the audience to feel uncomfortable during a sex or a love or a romantic scene, you don't want people to go, oh, look away. Uh, on the other hand, if you have an opportunity to create, you know, big time movie level romance, if you look at the uh, 
the the moments between Gomez and Morticia in the Adams Family movies, there's no sexier couple on earth or more romantic couple. So that was a joy because I thought Angelica and Raul Julia are so attractive and so dashing and so up for this. So when you write a love scene for those people, that's just a pleasure. And in my book, it's there's a, a main couple, and they just it's a follows their romance over a period of about fifty years or more. And sex is very important because it begins when these two guys are in college. And so it was new territory for me, but very satisfying because you could say, okay, how far do I go? How graphic? How explicit? But you just have to pay attention to the material. It will tell you. You know that, because um, I've read books where the sex scenes were great and others where you just, with the, the cringe factor, where you go, honey, have you ever had sex? You know <laughs> No, also it's funny with gay material, often if you read a certain level of, of gay romantic fiction, you could tell when it wasn't written by a gay person because just the sheer plumbing is off. You know, you just think, no, no, that's not how that, that's not where that goes. You know, <laughs> so it's kind of almost endearing when you think, you know, you really should get a gay friend at least, right. <laughs> um, let alone, you know, a diagram or a, uh, you know, gay sex for dummies or something. But um, but it's but I I found on on Farrell Covington I enjoyed it because I thought okay let's see how far I can take this right and what do you you were talking about how this book starts when they're in college and goes forward and all that and what do you like about writing books sort of about or for younger people like gorgeous or it's all your fault or something those, those were young adult books this Farrell Covington is a big time adult novel but. What I loved about YA, there are a couple of things. One is that you're allowed to have happier endings. In adult fiction, sometimes that's considered shallow. And I thought it isn't. I mean, happiness is every bit as valid as, as despair. Um, and in YA, there was a an immediacy to it. To, I mean, it's a huge genre now. It's more successful than almost anything else. I mean, romance and YA are off the charts. But that you have a direct content to your uh, direct contact with your audience because I find YA readers are so passionate and they just consume books and it's a wonderful audience there you know they could have quite a, a decent bullshit detector as well but they are ravenous for stories especially I think sometimes about young people but not exclusively but it was an interesting world to to um to drop by because it's not I don't know if I would do it again but I might but it's um it's a real realm unto itself. And that's, again, I always intended to be a playwright. I ended up being a novelist, being a screenwriter, being a uh, essayist, you name it. And I thought, don't worry about it. Don't worry about what specific profession I'm going to scrawl on my tax return. <laughs> you know, I'm a writer. And you let the material tell you what form it wants to uh, reside in. So right. um, so with YA, that there were two books where it was just, okay, these feel like this new form, not such a new form, but it was, um, I have a literary agent now who sort of guided me in that direction. And and I was very grateful. But that's why when I wrote Farrell Covington, it was like, nope, this is a grown-up book. This is the this is a real literary thing. And that's very daunting, but was also thrilling. So it's, uh, and also that was what the material wanted, that even the, the characters age from their teens to the end of their lives, um, but that was part of the the particular joy and challenge of that material was, okay, 
it's also one of the advantages of being older is you've you know what you're talking about. I think sometimes if and God forbid you're you are a child, but a clearly a very brilliant one, oh. that when you there's stuff you know about only because you've been through it. And that's right. a horribly old person snobby thing to say, but it's like, okay, I know what I'm writing about in this story, and I've been around long enough to know this entire arc of experience. And it was something that I was very passionate about sharing. And um, it just it just sort of poured out during the about a year ago that where it was like, oh, okay, this is what all the rest of my work has been leading to. Because it's about, a lot of it is about someone who's experienced a lot of the stuff I've been through. So it was, it was like this culmination and it was, oh my God, it was just explosive. And when I finished it, I thought, what have I done? You know, but I was so happy about it. And so I thought, no, no, this is exactly what this story wants to be. And then I rewrote it because you need to do that too. But it was, net, but not to an extreme degree. It wasn't like, okay, this is a mess here and it flies here. It was like, no, no, no. I knew what it wanted to be every step of the way. Yeah. Um, and then eventually you realize, yes, it wants to be that. It just wants to be that shorter. Um, <laughs> so um, so that, that was the kind of editing that went on. But yeah, it's uh, it's a wild ride. And I just have, have tried to never, I realized, never predict, you know, that you just just plunge in and fail miserably or not. Yeah. And with both of those specifically YA books that we were mentioning, they both deal in some way with the idea of celebrity. And what do you think sort of interests you about that idea and also would interest YA readers about? Well, YA readers, I think, are addicted to pop culture. They're like pretty much every one of it at every age. Is. <laughs> but there's a sense of, okay, these when you're dealing with celebrities, they're people who, for better or for worse, whether they deserve it or not, have been given so much in terms of financial success, adulation, audience screams, you know, that they, and what does that, what does that do to you as a person? And I've known enough people, enough famous people to see that it can cripple them. If they're smart, they realize how to ride those waves. They realize it's not going to be around forever. They Some of the smartest ones realize, oh no, you can actually have hills and valleys in your career and keep going. But it's very frightening. But I, it's also, I think it's a common fantasy. There's a sense that being famous will solve all your problems, which is not true, of course. Although people who act as if it solves none of them are equally mistaken. You know, it's like people who say, oh, only people who become very wealthy and famous say, you know, it's never about the money. That doesn't matter. I could wake up tomorrow and be, you know, be living in a, in a shack. And it's like, no, you couldn't. <laughs> it's like, no, the great thing about ever starting to earn some money is you stop having to worry about money every second. And I think that's one of the reasons that people get crushes on famous people. Well, they get crushes also because they are people who, through certain physical gifts or emotional shadings, you realize they're like figures in a book or a movie or a play. You, you just invest in them in that way. You think, oh, what if I went on a date with, you know, Timothy Chalamet or Brad Pitt or um, uh, Kristen Stewart, whoever you're thinking about, they seem to glow that much brighter. And that's why they fascinate the rest of us. Whatever fantasy they fulfill or whatever area they're exploring, we want to go along for the ride. And I love that. I mean, I love that sense of, it's sort of the way the world becomes musical theater. 
because you know how one of the things when I was a kid and now is you love that in musicals, it's life only better, life improved, life where the, the decisions are more horrible, but more glorious, you know, where it's all a little heightened and the colors are a little technicolor. So, and I think that's what movie stars have to offer. Um, and I've loved watching movie stars who sort of huddle in their overcoat and their scarf and act like, please don't bother me. You know, I'm, and I thought, okay, when that attention goes away, you're going to want to be bothered. Right. <laughs> it's, um, it's a fascinating uh, place to, it's all that, I think those lives become the, the fairy tales and sometimes the science fiction for our time because we anoint those people and say, okay, the Kardashians are going to be figures of interest for no good reason. I remember I was watching when Barbara Walters died recently and there was a clip of her interviewing the entire Kardashian family and she said to them, now none of you have any talent. <laughs> God bless them, they all agreed. And somebody, I, I don't know if it was Kim, said, no, we don't. We and we haven't tried. We know we can't act. We know we can't sing. We know we can't dance. But we're but we entertain people. And I thought she was not wrong. I thought whatever it is about the Kardashians that have mesmerized the world, it's not nothing. You know, it's not. It can't be that easily dismissed. There's something going on there in terms of their fame and how they've merchandised it that really captures people. And, you know, in a way you could trace every influencer, everybody who with a channel on YouTube to the Kardashians. Everyone is now monetizing their home, their makeup regimen, their wardrobe. And that's where a lot of that began, that sense of, no, anybody could do it and you don't need any talent or skill. Um, <laughs> but it becomes its own talent and skill. So it's, uh, yeah, I'm as interested in that as anybody that it's, you know, it's so funny when you watch people at the, de the dentist's office and they're looking at us weekly and, you know, it's nothing that they would think of themselves as, as being a fan of, yet they all know who those people are, you know, and that's interesting too, because you think, okay, why, how does, how does it, well, Taylor Swift is, is hugely talented, but how does someone like that attain that level of global fascination? You know, what is it that makes the farmer in Nebraska know who she is and care about her current boyfriend. You know, also it's funny, I think it, it, it's a kind of international gossip because I don't know who your neighbors or your best friends are, but we can both gossip about, you know, who uh, any movie star, any pop figure. So it's, uh, yeah, I think above all else, it's fun. You know, you could, you could get horribly critical and say, oh, it's the doom of, of, our souls, but nah, I think it's it's more a, an entertaining hobby for a lot of people. Yeah, and so um, to take us out to the current day, right before the pandemic, I know you were about to stage a play called Guilty Pleasure, and what was that about? And oh, that play was about going to be done at La Jolla with Chris Ashley directing, and it may still be. It oh. was um, actually I don't want to go into what it was about because it, it's a play with a certain element of the surprise. Although what happened at the same time, which was so surprising and, and interesting was I'd written a play called Coastal Elites, which was a set of monologues, which was going to be staged at the public theater by another terrific director, Jay Roach. And it was going to then be filmed live before a live audience for HBO. And then the pandemic came and it shut everything down and I remember exactly where I was because I had tickets for the opening night of six. Uh -huh. And I remember thinking, oh, I should go and support the actors. 
And then I thought, but I don't want to get COVID. And then they shut it down. So it was not my decision anymore. Again, I always interpret everything only through the most selfish personal <laughs> motives. But um, but so I assumed the coastal elites was gone for good. And then HBO called up and said, what if we could film it remotely? And so we shot it with this extraordinary cast with that, with Dan Levy, with Sarah Paulson, with Caitlin Deavers, with um, Issa Rae. It was just people you could never get on stage. You, know, you could never afford them. And we shot it, it was very early days of the pandemic. They sent the equipment to all these actors' homes where there was minimal or non-existent crews. Jay, the director, was on one channel. I was on another in our homes on different coasts. We were communicating through every means possible. The actors were amazing because they memorized these sort of half hour and all longer pieces. And it was right before the, the president, the last Trump election, and we were all going insane. It was, it was a, the play was written out of sheer panic over what was happening to the country. So it was this, it ended up being this weird and welcome opportunity to work with these great performers and with Jay and to sort of reflect a very particular moment in time. Right. And it was, there were people who loved it, people who did not, but it was, I was so grateful that we figured out a way to do something, which was originally going to be a stage piece. And because those performers are so gifted and so intense and so, were so invested in the material, you just couldn't stop watching them. And um, so that was, was something that was somehow both theater and, and TV in one. Um, so yeah, guilty pleasure. Though hopefully we'll return uh, later season at La Jolla, which they've they've been getting their audience back and scheduling longer and longer seasons. But like every place else, theater is uh, all across the all around the world is still kind of in recovery. Right. That's why it's fun to be able to write books too. <laughs> um, see again, I'm I'm interpreting a pandemic entirely through. Oh, time for a novel. <laughs> uh, but it actually it ended up being. One of, the, one of those times I was grateful to be a writer because you can do things in your room on your own time. And I felt awful for the theater artists, especially and film people who were couldn't work, you know, and they were doing all that Zoom theater. But I think that was frustrating in its way and that you thought people were dying to get back on stage. I remember one of the other last stage things I wrote was a monologue for Nathan Lane that we did yes, yes. right as theaters were opening back up. And it was about somebody, it was about a guy who just collected playbills and couldn't wait to go back to Broadway. And Nathan was, of course, beyond brilliant. And we staged it at the, um, it was the St. James Theater before an invited audience of healthcare workers. And I went, I was there too with my, with my husband and we, everyone was seated like five seats apart and you're masked and vaxxed and everything. So it was the, a weird experience to be in a huge Broadway house that was only like a third full by choice, you know, and watching um, Nathan and Savian Glover did a whole wonderful routine of his own. And um, so it was just kind of a, a, a baby step back towards live theater. And it was thrilling. And it was, we were all just like, okay, we are all in this together. We all can't wait for this to, you know, be available to us again. And, you know, and say, I, I mean, I'm go I go to the theater now all the time, but it's still, you realize, you know, we're still canceling shows. I'm so, impressed and awed by actors who have to put themselves at that kind of risk every time they are there in rehearsal or on stage but I think you know we're getting there yeah definitely definitely and speaking of uh being a novelist and how that helped during the pandemic you published the playing the palace which was yes. 
wonderful novel. And how did the idea for that come about? That actually, again, it's things are so interesting. It started as a play many years ago, um, decades ago. And it was called Playing the Palace back then. But I remember being fascinated by the royal family. And I remember there was a an incident. This must have been like 30 years ago when there was so little security at Buckingham Palace that a guy broke in and Queen Elizabeth found him in her bedroom. And thank God he was not violent. He was just kind of a crazy person who was just sitting there. And she summoned someone and he was taken away. But I kept thinking about that kind of access to the royal family and how they're such fascinating figures, but they're very um, hidden to us because they do very little personal press. They don't get interviewed. So I thought, oh, okay, that's good stuff. And playing the palace, I just wanted to write a sort of all stops out gay romance between the crown prince of England and uh, uh, a, a party planner from Manhattan who was sharing a you know place with three roommates. And it just felt like a party and in itself. So that was, uh, yeah, and that was all written and edited during the pandemic. And it was, again, you could see, I think, readership of all books at that time soared. It's leveled off a little bit since then, but you really felt that context of, okay, you could provide a service. You could make people laugh. You could make people sort of swoon a bit. Right. Um, so it was just another opportunity where I thought, oh, this is a story I want to explore. And it went from being a play to very naturally being a novel because I wanted it to be in a first person voice. It's all told by by the main guy and uh, which is something that's much trickier to get on stage. So it just, yeah, was another one of those you never know experiences where I thought, OK, this was an idea that had been simmering. And also when I first thought of it, even though it had gay elements, it couldn't, again, be as completely open and centered as it was a year or two ago. So that was, I think, why my brain, my writer brain was waiting because, okay, this is how this wanted to finally be realized. So it was uh, it was a joy. And I was so thrilled that a publisher was interested in that people had been reading it. Um, so yeah, again, it's that, you know, you never know and make your pandemic useful. <laughs> I'd be such a terrible self-help guru. I <laughs> tell people the worst things. Um, lucky you, there's a global catastrophe. But that's the other thing is you realize when you've lived long enough to experience the AIDS epidemic, 9-11 and COVID, it's not that you get jaded in any way or you in any way belittle the, the tragedy that people suffer but you're a tiny bit more prepared for it. You realize, okay, this is how there were, some people step up, some people are extraordinary when you watch the efforts of the, the doctors and nurses during the pandemic and during the AIDS epidemic, that was a little slower in coming. It makes you appreciate a figure like Dr. Fauci, who was a hero of actually two medical horrors. Um, so, but you start to realize, okay, you could see how the world adjusts itself to something they didn't see coming and something quite horrific. So um, yeah, that's also when I realized if I can make people laugh, I think that's uh, a very, a very necessary tool. Um, you know, that it's not something to ever disdain or feel is lesser. You know, that's no, that's what gets us through. Because I know someone, again, I know so many people who are funny and people who've gotten themselves through awful illnesses, family problems, crimes, by their wits. And I always want to sort of salute those people. And 
as a um, as a sort of royal family fan and follower and all that, what are your impressions of sort of <laughs> all that's happening now with? Oh, I can't wait. I devour it. I, I you know, and it's because I, I love people take it very seriously, which is kind of hilarious. You think, okay, there's no one more isolated and different from the rest of us than the royal <laughs> family. So if you want to take them as a symbol of whatever, that's fun, but it's not the, it does not have the far-reaching impact that sometimes op-ed essayists pretend. Um, but it is fun to, you know, when you hear about the two brothers having a physical brawl and the people who, and you know, and Megan though, that is fascinating because she really has experienced that degree of racism and she really is a pioneer in so many respects. But it's, and I, I was always such a fan of Queen Elizabeth because I thought she, you know, she made some wrong moves, but on the other hand, she endured. She was someone who did not complain. She did not whine. And that always sort of drew me. And she always wore bright colors, which I love. The <laughs> were so extreme. And there was a reason for that was because she's very tiny and you wanted the camera to be able to find her. So she did it quite deliberately. Um, and that, and she also, I think, cheered people up enormously. So yeah, so with the Harry book, I'm always a little torn with books like that between reading the entire book and of course, reading the highlights that we get online and everywhere else. And okay, these are the, you know, the best bits. These are why you're gonna sell the copies um, and watching. Cause I love the, um, the Oprah interview. Oh. With, with Megan and Harry, especially because the setting was so ridiculous. You know, they were on the, at this gorgeous estate. <laughs> I don't think it was Oprah's, but with, you know, the lawn in the distance and the rolling hills and everyone was so beautifully dressed. And I kept waiting for like, you know, Gail or somebody to wander by. Because <laughs> <laughs> it seemed such an opportunity. But I thought Oprah is, you know, world-class and Megan and Harry were very prepared and are very, you know, that's it's that point at which celebrities also become performers because you think Megan and well Megan was a trained actress but that they knew how they wanted to present themselves and they knew what questions they would answer and what stuff they would veer off from so it yeah I just couldn't get enough there is, I mean it's the Kardashian factor where you think there is no good or moral reason for our <laughs> fascination with this particular family but give me more you know that it's um also because Megan and Harry seem really appealing that I think they are dealing with a lot of, you know, sort of ungodly obstacles there and figuring out a, a, a way to be a modern royal couple, whatever that means, which is also a bit what playing the palace was about. So um, yeah, they're also, you know, amazingly attractive. Although today, funny should bring all this up. I was watching the latest pictures of Kate Middleton. Nobody wears a coat like Kate Middleton, you know, she's so tall and so ungodly slim. And I know there are real concerns about eating disorders, but on the other hand, her coats are so incredibly well fitted and flare out. And I think, is she naked under those coats? <laughs> How could she be wearing anything else? You know, unless she literally weighs 10 pounds, but she looks gorgeous and she's very athletic. So to her credit, maybe she is just fine. But, um, but yeah, that's one of the other, but that was the kind of, it sort of turns the whole world into Libby Gelman Waxner because we can discuss what the royals are wearing, who they might be running off with, you know, which house they get, how much money they get. It's kind of like, I remember when, when Trump divorced Ivana, if you were living in New York at the time, she only got 25 million in the settlement. And New York was outraged. We all thought she deserves so much more money. And we were, and I thought, None of us have $25 million. That's a lot of money. But we were all felt she'd been horribly wronged. And that's the kind of thing with the royal family where you think, okay, we all need to take a side. We all need to cheer for, 
you know, Megan or William or whoever we like best. What about Camilla? You know, it's just, it's also the best soap opera because also what I, one of the best things I found about genuinely wealthy people, you don't have to worry about them quite as much. <laughs> Their kids will go to college if they want to. <laughs> There's, it's the great thing about being a royal. You can't really be fired. You can abdicate. There are very few jobs. King of England, the Pope, that's about it, where you have absolute job security. So I think that's part of the fun too, of Supreme Court justice, where you think, okay, what if I were in that position where I had this great spotlight, a wardrobe, a castle, what would I do with it? <laughs> um, and yes, that, you know, it's perfectly fraught, but it is, I'm, I'm as much of a fool as anyone when it comes to them. Oh, yeah. And so at this point, as, as we're talking right now, are there any other books, movies, or things that you'd like to adapt or original ideas you have? Yeah, no, I'm working on another book right now. Um, plays like Guilty Pleasure. There's, yeah, there's a number. There's a working on a, a Billy Eichner and I sold a movie idea to Amazon that I'm that I'm doing the script for. So yeah, things are are percolating. But there are. It's nice to also go from from one thing to the next. But the books are very absorbing because I just I so fell in love with that form, and so had a, a some sort of breakthrough where I thought, oh okay, whatever skills I have are all now at full force. In, in this novel. And I, so I wrote another one to see, could I do that again? You know, again, that always that the nicest challenge to have. And I, I loved it. So, uh, so yeah, there's a lot of stuff on the horizon. Oh, oh great. And then the final question I'd love to ask is, Good. with such a wonderful career, what advice would you give to someone just starting out as a writer? Good Lord. I always, whatever, that it's such a, an unanswerable question because I always think everyone's particular path is so different that anytime someone gives advice, I think, well, that worked for you. That probably will not work for whoever you're talking to. You know, and how dare you imagine your experience is invaluable, yet alone, let alone universal. I mean, there are certain things that, um, you know, tricks that you could develop. But the main thing that I think is true is that how badly you have to want it that you have to be willing to develop a very tough skin, whatever area you're going into in the arts or show business or, or you name it, that it has, you have to want to do it more than anything else. You have to be willing not just to suffer, but to suffer in poverty and anonymity. You know, you have to be happier in your, especially for a writer, I'd say you have to enjoy being alone. You have to, um, not seek out constant stroking and constant praise. That's deadly. You also can, as I said earlier, you can't treat your work as if it's, uh, you know, never to be touched by any other human hand. You should never, you would never need editing or advice or direction. You have to be open. Right. Um, so that's stuff that I, I have experienced. Beyond that, what I love is when I see a play, or read a book or, or see a movie that where it's someone who just surprises me at shock speed, I think, I have no idea how they did that, which is also true that when you do something that is successful, that reaches people in some way, you'll ask yourself, like, what did I do? Where did that come from? But, you know, when I see a wonderful play like like Slave Play or a show like um, A Strange Loop or Kimberly Akimbo or things that are, there's a, um, a wonderful book by Tori Peters called uh, um, Transition Baby, Detransition Baby. And they just capture me in the best possible way where you go 
oh my God, that's a world I didn't know about or hadn't experienced to that degree. I'm hugely entertained. I immediately want to go back and experience it again. And I'll see anything else that these people are involved with. And that's, you know, and again, I look at it and I think, okay, what can I steal? You know, what can I, how can I adapt my own work to this genius? And I always end up saying, you can't, you know, that's them. That they're, they're working at, at their peak um, or their current peak. And that's what's so glorious. That's why the best thing you can be their audience. Um, but yeah, I would say the people who tend not to succeed often weren't meant to in a certain way that they there's some other uh, place in life that will suit them a little bit more fully um, or appropriately. But if you you if you want it that badly and you're that in love with with theater or fiction or film, just keep at it and um, and above all else, don't make those lists which I made constantly of people who are younger than you and hugely successful, who you can hate, you know, and say, wait a minute, why is that person is 23? You know, why do they get that break? That's, you know, you'll kill yourself. So uh, so don't don't compare yourself, which is again, something very easy to say, we all do it anyway. Um, but yeah, I also, you know, whenever, it's funny whenever people ask that awful question, if you could go back and talk to your younger self, what would you tell that person? I always think that's, you can't do that. It's that. Why would you ever listen to yourself back then? It's just also you were, you were figuring things out. So advice from your ghost self would not be particularly helpful. Um, you know, it's not a Christmas carol. So I would say the only kind of advice that's worth something is if you surround yourself again with very talented people who will make you better that's how you will learn you know not from me spouting something but from being in the room with you know a chris ashley or um whoever that might whoever your director or lyricist or editor might be that's who you can rely on especially if you don't hide you don't act like oh i always have to look and behave perfectly around them you know don't become some needy demanding horror, but allow yourself to sort of be, allow yourself to be fully exposed in front of them, you know, allow yourself to fail. But again, all of this, it starts to turn into platitude. So I would just say, my only advice is go do it. And, you know, so I get, I get to see it. Well, thank you so much for doing this. It's been such an honor. And Oh, thank you. You're you're great. And I can... Listeners, thank you for tuning in. And remember to come back next time when I will be joined by Tony-nominated actress Josie de Guzman, who will be presenting a show featuring stories and songs from her life and career at the Green Room 42 on September 8th and 10th. Among her Broadway credits include starring in the revivals of West Side Story and Guys and Dolls, as well as Runaways, Carmelina, and Nick and Nora. She's also performed in countless plays at the Alley Theater in Houston, ending She Loves Me, The Music Man, Carmen, and others around the country. You won't want to miss this interview, so make sure to tune back in for that, and thanks for listening.